passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, this morning we're uh, continuing our series on the intersection of faith and work. And if you uh, have been with us for the last several weeks, you've, you've seen some of the ways that our, our faith intersects with our work. And, and the reality is, uh, the last several weeks, we've spent the most, of, most of our time looking at the way that our faith as Christians influences our work. And vice versa, we've been looking at specifically how our work as Christians matters to God. As we've been going through this, we've looked at how Jesus himself, as he uh, died on the cross and rose from the dead, how his, uh, his life and his death and, and resurrection transformed our work. We saw how the ways that our view of eternity influences the way that we work today. Last week, we saw that each of us is going to be transformed by our work, either in a good way or a bad way. And so we saw the way that we can ensure being transformed more into the likeness of God through his word in our work. As we've been going through all of these different questions and and topics, maybe you've been wondering, what about the work of non-Christians? What about the work of those outside of The church. Is there any overlap between the way that God views our work and the way that God views those uh, who are outside of the church and the way that they work as well? After all, if we look and if we're honest with ourselves, we can look at people who are our co-workers and frankly, they don't believe in Jesus, but they do a better job at their job than us. We are blessed by the work of those who aren't Christians. Even in my field, uh, there are some books that are written by atheists Uh, on topics of theology, on topics of of biblical Hebrew grammar that I find to be better, frankly, than those who are Christians. We are blessed by the discoveries and by the insights of those who don't follow Jesus. Another example of this is entertainment and the arts. You look at most of, or or not maybe not most of, but a number of the best artists in human history, and a majority of them were not Christians. You look at Hollywood today, too, and some of the best actors out there are not Christian. What do we do with that? How do we reconcile the fact that our work transforms us, Christ transforms us through our work, and the reality is you look and there are a number of people who don't believe Jesus, don't really want to have anything to do with the church, and God is working through them. It it appears just as much as, or if not more, than through us. Even if we broaden the the horizon here and and stop talking about work, but just in general, there are some people out there who are not Christians and are just better people than some of the Christians we may know. There are groups like the LGBT community and want to have nothing to do with the church, want to have nothing to do with Christianity, and yet at times they are better at defending the rights of minorities than many churches are. They are better at defending and fighting against injustices than many churches are. Why is that? If you've ever wrestled through these questions, got some good news. Uh, This morning is going to address that very topic. 
are going to address the connection between our work as Christians and the work uh, of non-Christians. If you look at the title of the sermon this morning, it is called How God Uses Our Work to Bless Others. How God Uses Work to Bless Others. The reality is, every single person on the face of the planet, God can and often does use their work for the blessing of all of us as a society in general. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. To answer this question, it really comes down to one theological principle, one, that, one that's uh, often overlooked in our churches, but one that's profoundly important, and it's this uh, phrase called common grace. Common grace. If you want to know why your non-Christian co-workers are so good at their jobs, it's because of common grace. If you want to know why you benefit from the research and the discovery uh, of those who are not in the church, it's because of common grace. If you want to know why the artwork of some of those who are outside of the church is so moving to us, it's because of common grace. As you hear that term, you might be saying, okay, well, what exactly does common grace mean? What is common grace? How does God use common grace? What is the uh, way that common grace applies to our work? What is common grace? Those are the questions we'll be looking at this morning. We're going to look first at what common grace is. Second, we're going to look at how God uses common grace. And third, we're going to try to apply it to our work specifically. So first question is this, what is common grace? The easiest way to understand common grace is just to think of it as the grace that God has, not just for us on the cross, not just for Christians on the cross, but it's the grace that he has for all of humanity that God has for all of creation. There's a verse uh, in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says this, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And this is the part about common grace right here. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's common grace. The fact that God allows the sun to rise on those who are good, who are righteous, and those who are bad, who are wicked in his sight. The fact that God blesses farmers who follow him with rain, and God blesses those who don't follow him with rain. That is common grace. It's the blessing of God, the gift of God to all of humanity in general. So let's look at a couple specifics of what common grace is. And to do that, we're going to jump all over the Bible. Uh, Normally, we don't do that. We typically stick with one passage of Scripture and work our way through it. Uh, But this morning, we're going to practice our sword drills, if you will. And we're going to be looking at a number of passages of Scripture to see what common grace is. So the first thing is this. Common grace reveals to us God. Common grace reveals God to us. I love the TV show Planet Earth. I don't know if many of you have seen that, but Planet Earth is just wonderful. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, For those of you who are unaware of what it is, it's a British nature documentary. Maybe the fact that the narrator is British and he he talks with a British accent makes me love it even more. Uh, But it's a British nature documentary that was released about 10 years ago. And it's the most successful nature documentary of its kind. It took over five years to film, and the person who filmed it and was in charge of it actually spent uh, 10 years right before that filming another documentary called Blue Planet, focusing on the oceans of the world. And uh, every single 
episode, there are 11 episodes in uh, planet Earth, each one took about $2 million to produce. Covers from the North Pole to the South Pole, they traveled hundreds of thousands of miles, took five years to produce, spent nearly $22 million to, to make it, and it became the number one best-selling Blu-ray of that year, the year it was produced, and the year it was released. Why is it that a company spends so much time and so much money on a TV show about the planet? Why do so many people go and buy this documentary series about the planet? I think it's because nature strikes a chord with us. There's something within nature that just strikes a chord within us. That's why millions of people visit national parks each and every year. If you look at it from a purely practical standpoint, there is nothing relaxing or enjoyable about leaving behind the modern conveniences of air conditioning as we are experiencing right now. Nothing enjoyable about that. Going and sleeping on the ground and trying not to get eaten by bears. There's nothing uh, enjoyable about that from a purely practical point of view. But there's something about nature that strikes a chord with us. That we are amazed by nature. People go to the Grand Canyon and they stand in awe. People go to the Rockies and they get chills. People are, feel, are filled with an awe-inspired dread when they stand before the power and the majesty of Niagara Falls. Why is that? I think it's because each and every part of creation, each aspect of creation is telling us there is a God. He created me and he created you. The psalmist describes this in Psalm 19. He says this, The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pour, he pour, they pour out speech and night to night they reveal knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The psalmist is telling us that the heavens and by extension all of creation are revealing to us, declaring to us, shouting at us the glory of God. And this revelation is available to every single person on the face of the planet. This is what we call general revelation. It's the fact that creation is telling us that there is a God. Now, why is this common grace? Why is it common grace that creation is telling us that there is a God? It's because God didn't have to create creation this way. He didn't have to fill it with signposts pointing us to him. Now, here's the really interesting thing. Every time you stand in awe of creation, every time you stay, you just are, are standing there and speechless because of creation, it's not because of creation, at least not really. You're in awe of the one who made it. You might not even cognitively recognize it, but we stand in awe of the one who made the heavens and the earth. We stand in awe of creation telling us that there is a God who made us. And this is common grace. The fact that God chooses to reveal himself to us. God has given us that gift. Not just as Christians, but everyone on the face of the planet. God reveals himself to us. So that's one thing about common grace. Second thing is this. Common grace gives us a sense of morality. 
Common grace gives us a sense of morality. About 50, 60 years ago, there was a Christian philosopher uh, named Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer was a Swiss uh, Swiss man, and one of the, he was really big into arguing and, and debating uh, people in the postmodern worldview. And one of the ways that he ministered to people in this worldview was by creating this uh, retreat center in the Swiss Alps called Labrie. There, uh, this place was a, a place where anyone was welcome, regardless of their background, and they would be able to come and just stay with Francis Schaefer and his wife and his family for as long as they chose, and they would just do life with him. Every, t- uh, every day after supper, there would be a long discussion with, between Francis Schaefer and most of the people who were there. Oftentimes, these people were atheists or skeptics or people who were doubting in God. And they would talk about various things, and Schaefer would just dialogue with them. And the story goes that one day, there was a skeptic there who refused to believe that there was an absolute uh, truth about good and about evil. He said that good and evil were just social constructs. Everyone, uh, every society creates what good is and what evil is. There is no absolute sense of morality in our world. And Schaefer spent a couple hours talking with this guy and couldn't make any headway with him. And so he walks over to the fireplace. There was a pot of boiling water in the fireplace and he grabs it. And without saying anything, he comes back over to the man and he stands above him. And he starts to pour boiling water on his head. The man obviously is concerned by the fact that this Christian philosopher is about to pour boiling water on his head. And so he looks up before he starts pouring it, actually. And he says, what are you doing? And Francis Schaeffer calmly replies, I'm pouring boiling water on your head. And the man says, why are you doing that? He said, I don't know. I just want to. He says, that's not right. That's not right. This man about learned the hard way. What scripture makes clear to us. Each and every one of us comes pre-programmed with a sense of what is right and what is wrong. It doesn't matter if we are in the church or if we are outside of the church. Each and every one of us comes pre-wired with this sense. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 2 when he says this. For when Gentiles... Who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What Paul is saying here is that each and every one of us has an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong. Now, we can ignore that sense. It's very possible for that sense to become deadened over years and years of rebellion against God, uh, years and years of sin. But all of us come with this sense of what right and what wrong is. For the most part, we don't need to be taught what right and wrong is. Now, there are some gray areas, but as a whole, we come with a sense of morality. And again, this is another gift of common grace from God. God didn't have to imbue this sense of morality within each and every one of us, but he chose to, and he gave it to all of humanity. Common grace gives us a sense of humanity. Third thing is this, common grace enables every good gift for us. James 1, 17 says this, 
Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James and and Scripture as a whole makes it very clear to us that every good gift in this life is a gift from God. The acts of kindness that our Christian friends give to us are gifts from God. The acts of kindness that our non-Christian friends give to us are gifts from God. A good slice of pizza is a gift from God. A beautiful summer day is a gift from God. Steve Garber puts it this way. He says this, And so the sweet smile of a baby, the tender embrace of a mother, the passion of a kiss, the smell of bread baking or meat grilling, the glories of the sea and the sky, the gifts of good works that satisfies and serves, the ordered safety of street lights and speed limits, the wonders of good novels and good music, the miracles of x-rays and dental care, the bright yellow daffodils and the pastels, pastels of foxgloves, the steady support of friends and the enduring affection of a spouse, the accountability of justice and the responsibility of citizenship, and on and on and on. Each of these are common graces. They do not save us from our sin, but they are gifts of God, and we see them as that. All of these things have their ultimate source in God. And not only Christians can receive them, but every single person on the face of the planet is able to receive these good gifts because of common grace. Another thing about common grace, common grace restrains evil. It restrains evil. There's a really interesting passage in Genesis chapter 20 that talks about this. Uh, Genesis 20 verses 1 through 6 says this, From there Abraham journeyed. He journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did not he say himself, uh, say himself to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I love that part, by the way. He, takes, he just takes a woman uh, in the integrity of his heart and the innocence of his hands. Um, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Really interesting story, really interesting passage. I just want to zoom in on this, this discussion between God and Abimelech. Now, Abimelech is a pagan king. He doesn't worship God. He doesn't worship the God of Israel. He worships idols. He doesn't know God, and yet God chooses to reveal himself to him. And there's this discussion that takes place between God and Abimelech. And what God does is he intercedes before Abimelech commits evil. See, one of the ways that God shows common grace to us as humanity is that he steps in and he restrains many of the evils of our hearts. We don't even recognize that oftentimes, but he steps in in the same way that he did with Abimelech and restrains the evil of our hearts. I shudder to think of what things would be like in our culture if God were not at work, even if it's not in a way that's explicit as with Abimelech. 
not just non-Christians, but Christians as well. We have a ton of evil in our hearts that God is restraining, and that is a gift of grace from God to us. God restrains evil. Another thing about common grace is God uses common grace to guide nations. This is particularly important uh, for us today. This is Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that the gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasure of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. Cyrus was another pagan king lived thousands of years after Abimelech did. Uh, He was not a Jew. He was not a God worshiper. We know from other passages in scripture and as well as just history in general that Cyrus was not exactly a good person. He was a pagan king who did what he wanted and worshiped his pagan gods. And yet notice what God calls him. He calls him his anointed. This is the same language that God uses for King Saul in the Old Testament. It's the same language that God uses for David in the Old Testament. It's even the same language that is used for Jesus, for the Messiah. And yet he's a pagan king who doesn't know God. Now I'm not at all comparing Cyrus to Jesus or to David or Saul, but I think it's significant that he calls him his anointed. I think it's significant that God's spirit is at work and using Cyrus to accomplish his purposes in this world. I think God does the same thing today too. He accomplishes his purposes through world leaders. Even through world leaders who don't know him, who don't choose, don't want any desire to to follow him or have anything to do with him, God can still and still does use them to accomplish his purposes. This is what we call providence. God guides nations. God uses his spirit to direct the leadership of nations. And this is really encouraging for us today. Even in light of the Supreme Court uh, system where it might seem like things took a step away from God's original plan, we can rest assured that God is still in control, that God is still working out his purposes here today. And we might not know what those purposes are right now. We may not be able to see the big picture, but we can be confident that the Supreme Court even is the anointed section of the anointed uh, government part of of God in the same way that Cyrus is to accomplish his purposes. That's the good news of Isaiah 45. So God uses common grace to reveal himself. God uses common grace to give humanity morality. He gives it uh, to give us good gifts, to restrain evil and to guide nations. But there's one thing that we have to be utterly clear about when it comes to common grace, and that this, it's this. Common grace does not save. Common grace does not save. It's a wonderful, beautiful thing, but it's not the saving grace of the gospel. Paul contrasts common grace and saving grace in Romans chapters 1 through 3. I just want to read to you Romans three twenty-one through 26. He says this, But now the righteousness of God 
excuse me, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forth as a propitiation for his, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of, one, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul there describes what uh, the saving grace of the gospel is. It's a beautiful passage, one of my favorite in all of scripture. But the argument of Romans chapter 1 Uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3 as a whole, is really comparing that to ways that are inadequate to save us. In Romans chapter 1, Paul points out that God reveals himself to us in creation. In fact, everyone on the face of the planet is able to know that there is a God because of creation. But the reality is that doesn't save us. In fact, it's that knowledge that actually condemns us. In Romans chapter 2, Paul points out that God is revealed to us in our morality. But it is not that that saves us. In fact, it's this morality and the fact that we don't keep it that condemns us before God. It is only the saving grace of the gospel found in Romans chapter 3 that saves us, that leads us to salvation. As much as we can appreciate common grace, I'll be honest, we as Christians oftentimes need to spend more time thinking about and rejoicing in common grace than we often do. We cannot forget that it will not save us. Only the grace of the gospel will. So that's what common grace is. Common grace reveals to us God. It gives us humanity, it gives humanity morality. It gives us good gifts. It restrains evil. It guides nations, but it will not save us. But how does God use common grace in society? How does God use common grace? I think that the best way to put it is that God uses common grace to care for his creation. God uses common grace to care for his creation. And I think he does this in two primary ways. First way is that God uses common grace to care for his creation by blessing the work of non-believers. By blessing the work of non-believers. That might be a little surprising to you, so let me just read a passage. This is Isaiah 28. This is another pretty big chunk. It says this, Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow the ground? When he has leveled it, uh, leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill and sow cumin and put in wheat and rows and barley in its proper place and emmer at the borders? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and human with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Now, how many of you, after hearing that, are saying, what on earth is Isaiah talking about in that passage? It's okay, because, yeah, thank you, because I, I, I was like that as well. I, I'm like, what on earth is Isaiah saying in this passage. Well, let's, let's take a look at what he says. He's talking to a farmer, 
And he talks to this farmer and he says, now when you're farming, do you continually just uh, prepare the ground to plant, but you don't ever, ever, ever actually plant? And the farmer would go, well, of course not. I don't do that. And he, and he says, well, when you, when you plant things, do you just scatter things willy-nilly? Or do you put them in certain parts of your field? Do you plant the wheat in one section and the barley in another and the emmer in another? And the answer is, well, I obviously follow a good plot. I don't just, you know, here's some barley, here's some wheat, and just throw it all over the place. I, I have some sort of, of sense to the way that I am planting and I'm farming. And then the, here's the kicker. It says, well, he's rightly instructed by God. What Isaiah is telling us is that practical farming techniques are a gift to us from God. They are God opening up the way creation is ordered, really his book of, of, of life in general, and just saying, this is how you should do it. This is how you should farm more effectively. And the reality is, this is the way God operates in every career field, every area of work. If there's a new medical advancement that takes place, it is not by human ingenuity that takes place. It is by God opening up his book and saying, here, here's a little bit more of how to do this. If there's a new technological advancement, it's God opening up his book to us. If there's a new method of operations that makes your company more efficient, it's actually God, whether we recognize it or not. Isaiah 28 tells us that it's actually God opening up his book and saying, this is the way you can do this more effectively. And the good news is, he opens up that book to Christians as well as to non-Christians. All truth is God's truth. John Calvin, he was a pastor in the 1500s. He puts it this way when he's describing ancient pagans, uh, ancient pagan Greeks, uh, Romans, uh, when they talked about philosophy. He says this, If we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither reject the truth itself, nor despise it where it shall appear, unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. Those men whom Scripture calls natural men were indeed sharp and penetrating in their investigation. Let us accordingly learn by their example how many gifts the Lord left to human nature even after it was despoiled of its true good. What John Calvin is telling us in that passage is, in order for us to rejoice truly in the gifts that God has given us as humanity, it is to rejoice when those who don't know him accomplish great things. Because it's not ultimately them who are the source, but it's the Spirit of God who is the source. And if we don't recognize that it is the Spirit of God who is the source, and as Calvin says, we dishonor the Spirit of God. We don't give him the credit that he is due. God is the source. So we can be confident that the work of those who are outside of the church is used by God to care for his creation, to advance the cause of stewardship of God's creation here in our world. God blesses the work of non-believers. Now, not in the same way that he blesses believers, not in the same way where he has a favor on us as people, but he blesses the work of their hands, that they can be productive, that they can accomplish good things, that they can be successful at their work. God uses the work of non-believers to care for his creation. 
Second thing is this. God cares for his creation by using our work to love our neighbors. To love our neighbors. We mentioned this several weeks ago, but I think it's important to to repeat here. One of the best ways for us to contribute and to love others is by being good and doing a good job at our work. That's one of the ways that we contribute to the betterment of society. It's through our work. There's this fascinating passage in the book of Jeremiah that was written to Israel while they were in exile. It says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from wives uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. Now, this is the really interesting part. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. This would have been mind-blowing to the people that Jeremiah was writing this to. They are in Babylon, the capital city of the place that just destroyed God's holy, sacred temple. They are living amongst the people who just destroyed God's chosen nation. And yet God says, seek the good of this people. Seek the good of this city. Seek the welfare of this people. One of the best ways that we as a church can love our community is by seeking its good. Seeking its betterment. Seeking its welfare. Its success. It's one of the tangible ways that we love those who are around us. This is a way that God uses common grace to bless those who are outside of the church. That God uses common grace to care for his creation through the works of Christians and non-Christians alike. So we've looked at what common grace is. We've looked at how God uses common grace. Let's finish with looking at how this applies to our work. I think there are three primary applications for the way common grace applies to our work. First, it's this. Common grace helps us see the value in non-Christians' work. It helps us see the value in non-Christians' work. Because of common grace, none of us are as bad as we could be. Remember, God uses common grace to restrain evil. If all truth is God's truth, if God is using non-Christians and their work for the betterment of his creation, well, we can rejoice when a non-Christian accomplishes something that is significant. And really, we shouldn't be all that surprised when a non-Christian is better at their job than a Christian is. It's because God is the source. They have received that gift from God in the exact same way that a Christian would have. So the first thing is, common grace helps us see the value in a non-Christian's work. Next thing. Common grace helps us see the value in non-Christians in general, just in non-Christians. Every human is created in the image of God, regardless of whether they are a follower of Jesus or not. And because of that, we can rejoice with them. God works in them, or rather through them, to accomplish his purposes in his creation. They are his creation as well. Really, the only thing that separates us from from those outside of the church is the saving grace of God. 
There's nothing different beyond that. There's nothing better about us. There's no reason why God uh, chose to save us and not them. It's only by the grace of God that we have been justified. That's a really important distinction, at least to our third area of application. That's this. The common grace makes us trust even more in the saving grace of the gospel for salvation. Let me explain that. In one sense, as Christians, we really shouldn't be all that surprised when there are non-Christians who are better at their jobs than us, even when non-Christians are more, more moral than us. Why is that? It's because we're not saved by our work. We're not saved by our morality. We're only saved by grace alone. Again, Christians aren't better than others. It is only through the work of the Holy Spirit that we are being transformed into the image of God. So we shouldn't be surprised when our neighbors are moral. We shouldn't be surprised when they are good at their jobs. Instead, we should rejoice because those are gifts of common grace that God is at work in our society through. At the same time, we should trust in the grace of the gospel even more for salvation, knowing that it is not our work that saves us, it is not our morality that saves us, but it is God himself that saves us. That's really what this text is about. If we were to sum up this concept of common grace and how it applies to our work this morning, if we were to sum it up, it'd be this. Your work is one of the primary ways that God cares for his creation. Your work is one of the primary ways that God cares for his creation. And then we turn that on its head and ask ourselves, so are we working well? Are we doing a good job at our work? Is God being pleased by the ways that we are working to care for his creation? You see, if God uses our work to care for his creation, then it is of utmost importance that we do our best at work. A commitment to this bigger picture of God's grace that encompasses God's grace for all of humanity as well as God's specific grace for those in the church frees us from making the mistake that we as Christians work better or or are better than those outside of the church. There is no free passes for us because we are Christians, but rather instead we should be motivated by the fact that God uses our work to care for his creation. So do your job well because God is using it for his glory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ways that your common grace blesses us here in the United States, here in North America, and throughout the world. God, you have blessed us so much with so many good and perfect gifts, as your word says in James 1, and I pray that we would use those to steward and care for your creation. God, I pray that you would uh, just be at work in our hearts and our minds and and convict us if we need conviction, uh, encourage us if we need encouragement, comfort us if we need comfort in this area. God, it is our desire to serve you in all that we do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.